This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Why do people who hate the church become Catholic? Conversion to the Catholic Church has always been unpredictable. The ninth chapter of Acts of the Apostles describes the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He persecuted Christians until he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Since that time, many converts to Catholicism are those who start out hating the church. Their conversion occurs because those individuals respond to God's grace. Today, the Return to Order podcast humbly attempts to simulate this process. We begin with an essay that describes reasons that many hate the Catholic Church. Then, we will look at the one factor that is causing many conversions today. Last, we will examine one particular conversion experience during the 19th century. So, first, we begin with John Horvat's essay, 17 Reasons Why the Left Hates the Catholic Faith. As leftist activism and violence increase, Americans must understand that the leftist agenda represents not just a political movement, but a worldview contrary to that of the Catholic faith. Wherever the left has dominated, a radical hatred toward the faith and those who belong to it are displayed. However, until the left is in control, this anti-Catholic hatred is kept in check and hidden. Leftist propaganda couches itself in terms that seek sympathy and not raise alarm. This deception makes it even more dangerous. The left's hostility toward religion manifests itself in many ways, whether it be the Antifa militants burning Bibles or the religious left that dresses up its Marxist ideas in religious terms. In an attempt to legalize their call for violent revolution, for example, so-called liberation theologians propose a Christian version of the class struggle. Today, the leftist movement is radicalizing by proposing an agenda with new communist ideas and goals opposed to traditional church teaching about God, society, and human nature. The left now incorporates postmodern thought into its twisted body of doctrine. Communism today goes beyond the Soviet state capitalism of old and embraces gender theory and identity politics, so contrary to the church's teaching on creation. This leftist vision threatens America and its love for freedom. The faithful need to be fully aware of the extent of this hatred to fight effectively against the left's nefarious agenda. There are many reasons why the left hates the Catholic faith. The following list of 17 reasons serves as an introduction to understanding the scope of the fight between these two opposing worldviews. Number 1. The left hates the notion of a transcendent and personal God. These attributes are the opposite of its Gnostic and egalitarian vision. Since the left hates all superiority, it considers an almighty and loving God oppressive. Instead, the left identifies with Satan, the devil, an inferior created being, a damned angel, and the supposed victim of the creator's eternal justice, and thus one who is oppressed, disenfranchised, discriminated, and marginalized to the peripheries. Number two. The left hates the church's moral law, which is based on natural law, a set of objective social norms valid for all times, places, and peoples. The left teaches that morality is relative. 
If it feels good, do it, was the hippie rallying cry, and promotes its own set of evolving norms on everything that favors its revolution. Number three. The left hates the church's concept of the family as society's basic unit, founded on the sacrament of marriage and the transmitter from one generation to another of morality, religion, tradition, and property. The left sees the family as an oppressive institution that must be destroyed, mutilated, and defamed. Number four. The left hates the institution of marriage defined as the union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others, open to children and responsible for their education. The left hates marriage because it reinforces morality. The left favors free love and sexual deviation. Number five. The left hates the church teaching that private property is just and necessary for society's good order. It sees property as a source of inequality and tries to undermine and limit it in every way possible. The left's ideal is to confiscate all private property, making it state or collective owned because, quote, the earth belongs to everyone, unquote. Number six, the left hates the church's hierarchical nature. It hates the church-established division between a teaching church the Pope, bishops, and priests, which teaches, governs, and sanctifies the faithful, and the learning church, the faithful, which allows itself to be taught, governed, and sanctified by the clergy. Instead of seeing in this division the path to heaven, the left sees a class of oppressors to be crushed and another of the oppressed in need of liberation. Thus, the left likes to promote class struggle inside the church. Number seven, the left hates the church's charity, which seeks to harmonize society, uniting all in the love of God and neighbor. The left, however, wants class struggle and strife. It espouses hatred and violence as the natural means to change society. Number eight, the left hates the Catholic teaching on sin because it affirms the existence of a higher law and a God who deserves to be obeyed. Moreover, it hates the church teaching that people are responsible for their acts and that these have consequences, which can be eternal damnation and punishment. Thus, the left denies free will and individual responsibility. It ascribes all blame for evil to social structures that must be overthrown. Number nine. The left hates the church's love of the poor, which seeks to alleviate the sufferings of the unfortunate instead of inciting them to revolt against those who have more. The left hates the gratitude, which the church teaches the poor must have toward those who help them. It sees this gratitude as humiliating and oppressive. Number 10. The left hates the concept of the immortal soul that makes each human being uniquely endowed with God-given dignity. The left says that the soul is a myth and treats people as mere biological matter to be used and abused in its revolutionary processes. Leftist regimes support abortion, for example. Number 11. The left hates the notion of grace, 
whereby a person participates in God's uncreated divine life and becomes capable of supernatural acts. The less egalitarian philosophy hates dependency, especially dependency on God and supernatural life. Number 12. The left hates liturgy, whereby individuals render official worship and praise to God through the church with all her rites, ceremonies, prayers, and sacraments. It hates this recognition of God's infinite superiority, which it considers oppressive. It desires a God on equal terms with humanity and a quote-unquote democratic people's church without priesthood or liturgy. Number 13. The left hates the church's proclamation of the truth and her office as its guardian. All is relative and evolving for the left, and therefore objective and immutable truth does not exist. Number 14. The left hates beauty. Wherever the left dominates, one finds ugliness enshrined in its buildings, art, and culture. That is because leftists deny the metaphysical foundations of beauty and embrace stark and utilitarian materialism. Number 15. The left hates the church's teaching on human nature, sanctification, and identity. Thus, there is a constant attempt to re-engineer human nature and create the quote-unquote new socialist man. Leftists try to deconstruct identity, gender, and being. The left embraces fantasies disconnected from reality. Number 16. The left hates the notion of a Christian order guided and inspired by church teaching and God's higher law. Such an order instills terror in the leftist soul, which rebels against any attempt to order society according to principles and rules suited to human nature. The left hates discipline and effort, even when they lead to happiness. Its society is liberal, anarchical, and disordered, oriented by a vision of the universe that sees everything as the chaos of matter in constant motion. Such a perspective leads to despair. Number 17. The left hates reality as embraced by the church and its Thomist philosophy. The most radical schools of the left see reality as an oppressive structure or social construct. The left subscribes to idealistic philosophies, drugs, and quote-unquote deconstruction as the means to deny reality and embrace utopianism and nihilism. The above list is not complete. Given that the leftist worldview encompasses every field of human action where the church has influence, many more hatreds could be identified. Likewise, not all leftists embrace equally the hatreds listed above. The drift leftward is a process that adapts to individual characteristics. However, all leftists tend in the direction of these hatreds of the Catholic faith. The radical left, now so active in America, will seek to take these hatreds to an extreme. They seek to make these hatreds the norms by which their brave new world will operate. Their use of violence, riots, and vandalism give a glimpse into this world. 
the symbolic display of guillotines at protests and during residential area terror marches points to anti-Christian, anti-Western hatreds never seen before in America. The left is not a political movement or a political party. It is a philosophical, religious worldview that expresses itself socially, economically, politically, scientifically, artistically, educationally, and culturally. Thus, to be fully efficacious, opposition to the left and its programs must be based on the solid understanding that its worldview is diametrically opposed to that of the Catholic faith. God's grace finds many ways to bring people to his church. Interestingly, many in the modern, ugly, and utilitarian world are attracted by its beauty. Plenio Mario Salomeo explores this motivation with his essay, Why True Beauty Attracts and Converts Youth. A recent study by a youth organization linked to England's Anglican Church states that, quote, church buildings are very influential in the conversion of youth to Christianity, unquote. Analyzing this study, the Daily Telegraph of London quotes that around 13% of teenagers said they decided to become a Christian after a visit to a church or cathedral, and that the influence of a church building was more significant than attending a youth group, going to a wedding, or speaking to other Christians about their faith, unquote. The Telegraph adds that, quote, the study suggests that church-employed methods such as youth groups are less effective to attract teenagers than prayer or a visit to a church. What attracts these English youth to churches and cathedrals? Many of them jewels from the Middle Ages stolen from Catholic worship during the apostasy and schism of the lurid King Henry VIII. The answer is that young people are attracted by the beauty of the architecture, the colorful stained glass windows, and the slender towers and domes that defy the ages. They seek out all that is missing in the new soulless and lifeless churches built according to the rules of so-called modern architecture. Youth's attraction to beauty gives rise to philosophical questions. What is beauty? Is it subjective or objective? Since ancient times, philosophers, especially Aristotle, have studied beauty and tried to explain it adequately. Following in the footsteps of the Greek philosopher, St. Thomas Aquinas masterfully addressed this issue. He explains that ultimately, beauty is one of the most enchanting divine perfections that brings us back to the Creator and leads us to love Him. In his Summa Theologica, St. Thomas says that as images and likenesses of God, all created beings participate and reflect this divine beauty in some way. However, our inquiry is limited to the effect of the beauty of Christian architecture on today's youth. We have to resort to earlier times, since almost everything in the Church has suffered from modern influence due to the Second Vatican Council's, quote, opening of the Church to the world, unquote. From the liturgy, to hardly sacred, secularized church music, to dreadful architecture, all aspects of religious life today have sacrificed beauty and succumbed to a dominating ugliness and bad taste associated with modernity. Interest in the beauty of religious architecture among young people is surprising and universal. 
The story of St. Thomas Aquinas Chapel at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln is a noteworthy example. When increasing numbers of the university's 25,000 students started to attend Mass, the old chapel became so small that a new one had to be built. The increased religiosity of the students was a welcome surprise. However, even more amazing was the involvement of the students in the design of the chapel. They presented many suggestions for embellishing the new chapel based on what they saw in traditional churches. The Most Reverend James Conley, Bishop of Lincoln, responsible for the university chapel, welcomed the suggestions. He selected architects that favored a classical religious architecture revival. The prelate states, quote, We think the style and the whole structure of St. Thomas Aquinas Church will communicate beauty, and beauty attracts. We believe that students will be drawn to that. They already have. There are always students in there, unquote. For his part, the chief architect, Kevin Clark, explained to Adoramus Bulletin that ever since the chapel was built, quote, it is amazing to watch Catholics and non-Catholics participate in the physical beauty of the building. It is a part of their conversation. It's an intrigue. There are quite a number of non-Catholics I bump into when I'm giving tours. They just want to be there. They just want to see it. And it really has become an element of the city's fabric. They would Google a picture, said Clark, recalling the design process, and hold up the picture on their iPhones asking, Can we have a communion rail that looks like this? Can we have a dome? Look at this bell tower. Everyone was sharing images. It was an amazing scene, unquote. One student-inspired feature of the new church that has drawn comments is the communion rail, separating the sanctuary from the chapel's main body. The communion rail is used at all masses. Quote, Some of the students stand, but the vast majority kneel down to receive Holy Communion, Father Robert Matya, the center's pastor, said. There's something different when you kneel to receive our Lord than when you stand. We have students who come from all over, in-state and out-of-state, but they all embrace that devotion. I haven't had one student say, Why are we doing this, Father? All the acts of devotion that were almost stripped away for a number of years. When you reintroduce the students to these same devotions, they fall in love with them. Unquote. We can also cite a final example of attraction to the beauty of religious buildings. At the Catholic Center at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, the new chapel of St. Paul was also built, inspired by the beauty of traditional Catholic architecture. One of those responsible for the center explained that they chose to build a more traditional building because students were thirsty for beauty. They based their decisions on a study that listed beauty as one of the most important reasons people come and stay in Catholicism. Quote, The facility needs to be large, beautiful, and visible enough for students to realize this. The students tell us that their friends do not understand that the gray concrete building next to the bookstore is a church. The project took elements of the church's architectural history that embody the beauty of our faith, but are also complementary to downtown Madison. Unquote. These examples show that the myth that youth is only attracted to modern things is false. 
Beauty attracts all ages, at all times, and in all places. As stated in the introduction, many converts hated the church until they converted. That was certainly true of a young Jewish banker named Alphonse Radisbone. His conversion in the early 1800s occurs despite his best efforts to avoid it. Armando Santos tells his story in his essay, This is How the Virgin Mary Converted Alphonse Radisbone. Alphonse Radisbone was a young Jew from a family of well-established bankers in Strasbourg, France. He also was socially prominent due to his wealth and blood ties to the Rothschilds. In 1827, Alphonse's older brother, Theodore, converted to Catholicism and entered the priesthood, thus breaking with his family, whose hopes now lay in the young Alphonse, born in 1814. Alphonse was intelligent and well-mannered, had already finished his law degree, and was engaged to a young Jewess, his niece. He was 27 years old and, before marrying, wanted to travel on a holiday to Italy and the East. Upon his return, he planned to marry and take on his responsibilities in his family's banking business. God, however, had other plans for him in Rome. Alphonse was not a practicing Jew, but he nourished a profound hatred for the Catholic Church, especially because of the resentment his whole family had due to their firstborn's defection. Alphonse said that he would never change religion. But if one day he were to change, he would become a Protestant, never a Catholic. While in Rome, Radisbone visited works of art, as well as some Catholic churches out of cultural curiosity. These visits hardened his anti-Catholic stance. He also visited an old schoolmate and close friend named Gustave de Brussières. Gustave was a Protestant and several times had tried, in vain, to win Alphonse over to his religious convictions. In Gustave's house, Alphonse was introduced to Gustave's brother, Baron Théodore de Brussières, who had recently converted to Catholicism. Baron Théodore, in turn, was a close friend of Father Théodore Radisbone. Because of these two circumstances, Alphonse greatly disliked him. Thus, it was only on the eve of his departure that he reluctantly resolved to fulfill his social obligation and leave his calling card at the Baron's house as a farewell gesture. Hoping to avoid a meeting, Alphonse intended to leave his card discreetly and depart straight away. The Baron's Italian servant, however, did not understand his French and showed him into the parlor while he went to call the Baron. The latter greeted the young Jew and immediately established cordial relations while trying to attract him to the Catholic faith. With much insistence, he was able to persuade Alphonse to delay his departure from Rome in order to attend a ceremony to be held at St. Peter's Basilica. He further succeeded in persuading Radisbone to accept a miraculous medal and to promise to copy down a very beautiful prayer, the Memorare. Had this not been inspired by grace, it would have been utterly indiscreet. The Jew could hardly contain his anger at the Baron's boldness of proposing these things to him, but decided to take everything good-heartedly, hoping, as he later declared, to write a book about his travels. In his book, the Baron would appear as nothing more than an eccentric man. On January 18th, a close friend of the Baron de Brussières died. He was Count de la Ferronaise, the former French ambassador to the Holy See and a man of great virtue and piety. 
On the eve of his sudden death, Laferronese was talking to Broussiers about Radisbone and, at the request of Broussiers, prayed the Memorare 100 times for his conversion. It is even possible that he offered his life to God for the conversion of the young banker. Around midday on January 20th, the Baron of Broussiers went to the church of San Andrea della Frate to arrange for his deceased friend's funeral to be held the following day. Radisbone reluctantly went along, making violent criticisms of the church and mocking Catholic practices. When they arrived at the church, the Baron left him alone for a few minutes and entered the sacristy to see about the funeral arrangements. Alphonse decided to look around and went up one of the side aisles, since he could not cross over due to the preparations for the Count's funeral in the central nave. When the Baron returned just a few minutes later, he did not find Alphonse where he left him. After much searching, he found him on the other side of the church, kneeling close to an altar, weeping. He no longer found a Jew, but a convert who ardently desired baptism. Radisbone himself tells us what happened in those few minutes. Quote, I had only been in the church a short while when, all of a sudden, I felt totally uneasy for no apparent reason. I raised my eyes and saw that the whole building had disappeared. Only one side chapel had, so to say, gathered all the light. In the midst of this splendor, the Virgin Mary appeared standing on the altar. She was grandiose, brilliant, full of majesty and sweetness, just as she is in the miraculous metal. An irresistible force attracted me to her. The Virgin made a gesture with her hand, indicating that I was to kneel and as if saying, Very good. Although she did not say anything, I understood everything. Radisbone could never explain how, being in one of the lateral naves before the apparition, he was found in the other, since the central nave was obstructed. However, in the face of the magnitude of the miracle of his conversion, this was but a detail. The news of such an unexpected conversion, so fulminating and complete, immediately spread and caused a great commotion throughout Europe. Pope Gregory XVI wished to meet the young convert and received him paternally. He ordered a detailed investigation with all the rigor required by canon law. The conclusion was that it truly was an authentic miracle. Having taken the name Maria Alphonse at baptism, Radisbone wished to become a Jesuit and was ordained in 1847. After a while, and at the suggestion of blessed Pope Pius IX, he left the Jesuits and joined his brother Theodore in founding the Congregation of Our Lady of Sion, dedicated to the conversion of the Jews. Father Theodore spread his congregation throughout France and England, while Father Maria Alphonse went to the Holy Land. In Jerusalem, he bought a plot of land where the Praetorium of Pilate had formerly stood. Here he established a house of the congregation. The two brothers died in 1884, both with the fame of exceptional virtues. This concludes... Why do people who hate the church become Catholic? Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and higher ratings mean that more people will be directed to the return to order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help return to order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the return to order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.